To make a donation, visit biblicallycorrectpodcast.org slash donate. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, and subscribe. Thank you for your support. What makes the MJLT an awesome Bible translation? Welcome to the Biblically Correct Podcast. Shalom, y'all. This is the Biblically Correct Podcast, teaching biblical correctness in a biblically incorrect world. My name is Kevin Jeffrey. I'm a Jewish follower of the Messiah Yeshua, Jesus, and I love teaching the scriptures. There are an increasing number of Messianic Bible translations out there. Some good, some of them pretty bad. But none of them are like the Messianic Jewish literal translation of the New Covenant Scriptures, the MGLT NCS. Today I want to talk to you about why the MGLT is such an important Bible translation, Messianic or otherwise, and to share with you five things that I absolutely love about this one-of-a-kind version of the New Testament. Now, I realize that this is a little bit self-serving because Perfect Word is the publisher of the MGLT and I am its editor. But we would have never spent the time and energy on it if it wasn't going to be an objectively excellent, reliable Bible translation that uniquely presents and preserves the Word of God while at the same time restoring its Jewishness. Let me give you just a really brief background on how the MGLT came to be. The MGLT is actually based on the framework of the 19th century translation by Robert Young, commonly known as Young's Literal Translation. It's a fantastic Bible version, but it's written in archaic English and is often pretty difficult to understand, largely because of how Young treats word order and verb tense in his desire to be perfectly literal. So as I started using Young's in my teaching and it being in the public domain, I methodically began updating the text for modern English. But when I realized that this needed to be a real, legitimate Bible translation, we also went back to the original biblical languages and building on Young's work produced what is in many ways a fresh translation, not to mention a Messianic Jewish one. So the MGLT NCS is an exhaustive update and re-rendering of Young's literal translation. And while the MGLT is only the New Testament right now, God willing, we'll finish the entire Bible somewhere in my lifetime. (laughs) So the first thing that I love about the MGLT is probably the most obvious, which is that the MGLT is a literal translation. We talked about the types of Bible translations all the way back in episode seven, where I said that the most reliable translations are going to be on the word-for-word end of the spectrum because they don't leave a lot of room for interpretation by the translator. You get less of the translator saying, this is how you should understand this scripture, and more of, this is what the scripture literally says. So the more literal the translation is, the more accurate it's going to be for bringing the original languages of Hebrew and Greek into the receiving language. Now, the Young's literal translation is about as far on the literal word-for-word end of the scale that you can get, and the MGLT is right there with it. As I already mentioned, Young was so focused on being literal that as much as he could, he even preserved the original word order from the original languages, which isn't particularly natural in English. And because I felt it was important to make the MGLT more readable whenever possible, we did adjust things a little bit. And by that, I mean only when it could be done without changing the meaning. For example, in Mark one fifteen. Young's translation says, fulfilled hath been the time, 
which accurately reflects the word order of fulfilled and time in the underlying Greek. But in the MJLT, it's rendered as the time has been fulfilled, where the words time and fulfilled are reversed from what it is in the Greek. So the meaning of the two phrases in English are exactly the same, yet the MGLT is more easy to understand. So in this sense, while Young's is the quintessential literal translation, the MGLT's adjustments to word order for the sake of readability makes it what I would call a slightly less than literal translation, but only slightly. Now, there are certain instances when changing word order also changes the meaning, which is really bad. And this is something that we worked extremely hard to avoid. During the course of revising Young's, perhaps one of the most blatant examples I found where other English translations egregiously change the word order is in Acts 15.11. The Tree of Life version, for example, the TLV, is pretty typical here. It says, But instead, we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Yeshua. So the issue here has to do with the word order of believe saved, and grace. And at first glance, nothing appears to be wrong in any way, especially when you consider that Paul says twice in Ephesians 2 that it's by grace that we've been saved. So that's true. But the problem is, that's not what Acts 15.11 says. Again, the TLV says, but instead we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Yeshua. But the MJLT says, accurately reflecting the word order of the Greek, but through the unmerited favor or through the grace of the Master Yeshua, we believe to be saved. So when you look at the word order of the Greek compared to the English, you can see just how far removed grace is from where it belongs in the text. And when you move it all the way on the other side of saved, you end up completely changing the meaning. So this is a big deal because while Paul says that it's by grace through faith that we're saved, Peter is telling us here in Acts that it's our belief that saves us through grace. Now, does that mean that the two statements contradict each other? I don't think so. I don't see why both God's freely given grace and our conscious act of believing can't be two necessary sides of the same salvation coin. So by Peter saying this here in Acts, which we see only when we correctly and literally translate the verse, he's emphasizing something that a lot of believers de-emphasize, which is the active role that we play in our own salvation. Being only saved by grace puts all the responsibility on Yeshua. But believing in order to be saved, even though that belief comes through grace, reminds us that from the very beginning of our relationship with God, we are active participants with ongoing responsibilities. So I can only assume that the translators keep translating this incorrectly in order to harmonize it with Paul for some doctrinal reason, but I don't see anything in the Greek that could justify it. It's liberties like this that translators take which keep us from having access not just to the most accurate Bible translation possible, but to the truth. So the best way to ensure that you're getting to the truth is when your Bible translation approach is truly literal. The next thing that I love about the MJLT is that because it strives to be so true to the original text, that any additions to the text are made totally obvious. Every word not found in the original Greek that's been added to the translation for the sake of clarity is clearly marked so that the changes are evident and unhidden from the reader. 
Most of the time, these additions are relatively benign. But sometimes, the text would be barely understandable without them. For example, in Matthew 7, 9-10, Young translates the Greek literally as, Or what man is of you, of whom, if his son may ask a loaf, a stone will he present to him? And if a fish he may ask, a serpent will he present to him? So something is obviously missing here. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Is the son asking the fish a question? Or is he asking his father for a fish to eat? Obviously, it's the latter, so the MJLT simply fills in the blanks to clarify. Or what man is among you of whom his son asks for a loaf of bread? Who will give to him a stone? Or if he also asks for a fish, will give to him a serpent? So the MGLT puts these additions in italics to indicate to the reader that these words are not found in the original Greek, but have been added for clarification. Now, of course, Bible translations make small additions like this all the time, but the reader is none the wiser. And if all such additions were as harmless as in this example, it might be okay. But there are times when translators make big changes that the reader will never notice. For example, the Tree of Life version renders 1 Thessalonians 5.25 and other passages like it, Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Seems pretty innocent at first, except that the phrase and sisters isn't in the Greek. The Greek here simply says brothers. And other modern translations do this too, apparently to use more inclusive language, based on the rationale that women would have also been hearing Paul's letters read aloud. But to me, the impetus for such an addition would more likely betray an agenda than it serves an accurate transmission of the text. The underlying Greek simply doesn't support such an addition. Perhaps one of the most notorious additions to the majority of English translations is found in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7, which is supposedly about the covenant of Torah. The ESV's translation is typical. It says, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. Now, the way this reads, it's saying that the covenant, meaning the Torah, is faulty and in need of a replacement, which is a standard Christian belief. But the problem is that the word covenant isn't here in the Greek. And the translators, through their anti-Torah lens, have inferred the word covenant based on the surrounding context. Again, it's a pretty big deal to suggest that God would make a faulty covenant, especially when the text doesn't explicitly say that. Yet in most translations, you would never know that the word covenant isn't supposed to be here. So if a translator is going to make a choice to impose his understanding onto the text, wouldn't you like to know it rather than be kept in the dark? With the MGLT, every such addition to the text is laid bare so that you can decide for yourself what the passage originally intended. And by the way, I'll do a whole teaching on this section of Hebrews in a later episode. So after the literal nature of the MGLT and its completely unhidden additions made for clarification, the next thing that I love about this Bible version is admittedly more cosmetic than substantive in a lot of cases, and yet it still performs a vital function for the translation. Rather than anglicizing Greek names as most English translations do, the MJLT restores them to their original Hebrew. For example, rather than translating Jesus as Jesus, the MGLT says Yeshua. 
Now, this practice is nothing new among Messianic translations. Obviously, I was inspired by Dr. David Stern's groundbreaking complete Jewish Bible. But what's unique about the MGLT is, instead of simply using transliterations, which are quasi-phonetic English representations of the Hebrew that often lead to mispronunciations, the MGLT goes a step further and alongside the translation embeds the actual Hebrew characters so that anyone with a basic understanding of Hebrew can read the names and correctly pronounce them. For example, in the MGLT, the first verse of Matityahu, Matthew, reads, A scroll of the birth of Yeshua the Messiah, son of David, son of Avraham. So the MGLT puts the Hebrew first, then the transliteration, separated by a comma. This is how all the instances of Hebrew words and names appear throughout the MGLT. And just in case you're wondering, yes, the MGLT uses the English Messiah to translate Christos in order to differentiate it from a separate Greek word such as found in Yohanan, which the MGLT renders, we have found the Mashiach, which is being translated anointed one. So while at first glance the Hebrew may seem daunting, you get used to it pretty quickly. In many cases, the Hebrew transliterations look somewhat similar to the anglicized versions, such as with David and Avraham, David and Abraham. Plus, the MGLT includes a glossary of terms, along with a pronunciation guide to help even a Hebrew novice get up to speed. Not only does the inclusion of the actual Hebrew characters make the MGLT aesthetically beautiful, but it reinforces the Messianic Jewish origins, audience, and nature of the New Covenant Scriptures. It's a constant visual and phonetic reminder that the New Testament is Jewish. And of course, the restored Hebrew names also restore their meanings, which are lost when the names are anglicized, the most obvious of which being Yeshua, which literally is salvation, a meaning that is completely missing in the anglicized Jesus. So while the inclusion of Hebrew is, in a sense, a cosmetic feature, it also restores the names of people and places as Yeshua would have known them, and visibly reminds you just how Jewish the New Testament really is. Now, besides the MGLT being a truly literal translation and not hiding anything from the reader, probably its most important feature is the unique order of books. The MGLT doesn't follow the traditional order as found in the Christian New Testament. Now, a lot of misunderstanding over the New Covenant Scriptures comes from the fact that people are largely unaware that parts of it were written specifically for an audience of Jewish believers. But once we realize this, it changes our perspective on certain passages and helps to correct our understanding of how those Scriptures should be applied. While most of the New Covenant Scriptures were written for a mixed audience of both Jewish and Gentile believers— a handful of them can be demonstrated to have been written specifically to Jews. So the MGLT then organizes the books according to the author's original intended audience. The first smaller section then we called the Scriptures Written to Messianic Jews and includes the books of Matthew, James, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st Peter, and Hebrews. And the second larger section comprised of books written for mixed audiences we called the scriptures written to both Messianic Jews and the reconciled from among the nations. This is the remainder of the New Covenant scriptures. But distinguishing the various writings according to audience is only the first part of how the MGLT book order differs from the traditional order. 
because within each of those categories, with only a few exceptions, the books are then organized chronologically, that is, in the order in which they were originally written, as best as can be determined. The advantage of organizing the books chronologically rather than artificially, as they appear in the Christian New Testament, is that it can help show the actual progression of theological development over the 30 or so year span they were written. This chronological arrangement is especially helpful for the writings of Paul. For example, what Paul writes in Galatians, his earliest book, can help serve as a foundational context for things that he writes later on. One of my favorite things about arranging everything chronologically is that it also naturally created a subsection at the end of the book consisting of all the writings of John, his gospel, then 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and finally, Revelation. It's an amazing climax for an amazing book. In fact, because of the way everything has been rearranged, Yeshua's story is no longer relegated to just the beginning, with the writings of the apostles to follow. Instead, Matthew is at the beginning, Mark and Luke are found in the middle, and John is almost near the end. This placement causes us to be continually reintroduced to Yeshua, the person, bringing our focus back to him, his life, and his actions, and reminds us how our theology and application are supposed to always revolve around him. So the result of this entire rearrangement of the order of books brings about a dramatic new perspective of the New Covenant Scriptures. In many ways, it's one of the most important features of the MGLT because it gives us a better framework in which to both understand the Scriptures and to make practical application of what it says. And finally, an MGLT feature that's related to chronological arrangement and possibly the feature that I love the most is how the book of Acts includes an historical timeline that's also synced up with the writings of James and Paul. The events of Acts span approximately 30 years. It was a transformational era for the body of Messiah that didn't happen overnight. But when you're just reading it, you really don't get a sense of just how much time is actually passing. So to address this, the MGLT integrates within the text of Acts, as best as can be determined, the approximate corresponding dates of events. This information increases our understanding of the depth and intensity of the formation of this new Messianic community and the time it took for the message of Yeshua to begin slowly reaching the nations. And as if indicating this timeline weren't awesome enough, the MGLT also notates the points that James and Paul likely composed their letters during the course of events. This is intended to prompt the reader to pause his reading of Acts and jump to the corresponding letter to see exactly what those emissaries were thinking and writing about at the actual time that those historical events occurred. This helps to put both the events of Acts and the writings of James and Paul into harmony and perspective. For example, between Acts 11.18 and 11.19, the MGLT inserts the line, Circa AD 40, Yaakov writes his letter. If we then jump to Yaakov, we read in the very first verse, from Yaakov, a slave of God and of the Master Yeshua the Messiah, to the twelve tribes of Yisrael who are in the dispersion. Shalom. In the dispersion. Then after we read Yaakov and return to where we left off in Acts, chapter 11, verse 19 begins, those indeed, therefore, who had been scattered abroad or dispersed 
from the oppression that came after Stephen. So it was during these events in Acts, which record the scattering and oppression of the Jewish believers, that Yaakov was likely writing his letter, a letter to Jewish believers. This information completely changes your headspace then when you read the second and third verses of Yaakov, where he says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into various ways of testing, knowing that the proving of your faith brings about perseverance in you. So this wasn't just some random encouragement that Yaakov was giving his fellow Jewish believers. On the contrary, in the context of the Jewish believers' persecution from their own Jewish people, a persecution of oppression resulting in their dispersion from Israel and scattering throughout Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch and all throughout the region, Yaakov was encouraging them to persevere and count it all joy. Being able to see Yaakov and Paul against the backdrop of Acts and conversely to get a behind-the-scenes look at Acts history through the minds of the emissaries helps to complete the picture and deepen the impact of the words of Scripture. That's why this is possibly my most favorite feature of the MGLT, because it reveals a real, tangible dimension of the Word of God that's lost on nearly everyone who uses a different version of the Bible. So what I love about the MGLT NCS is that it's an objectively excellent literal translation of the New Covenant Scriptures that sticks as close as possible to the original text for a reliable, accurate rendering of Scripture. And it accomplishes this while at the same time being completely open and honest with the reader, showing even the smallest of additions that were made for the sake of clarity in translation. I love the beautiful aesthetic of the actual Hebrew lettering embedded within the text, reminding the reader that he's reading a thoroughly Jewish book. And I especially love that the order of books are arranged according to audience and chronology in order to reveal elements and connections within Scripture that would be otherwise obscured in the traditional Christian New Testament and Messianic Bibles that follow that same order. I love the MGLT NCS for all these reasons and many more, but overall, I love it because it's a truly important version of the New Covenant Scriptures that stands apart from all the other versions in the way it uniquely preserves the Word of God and restores the Jewishness of Scripture. And now, it's time for a shameless plug. If you want to learn more about the MGLT NCS, visit mglt.org to see more features, check out sample pages, and learn how it compares to other Messianic translations. The MGLT NCS comes in both paperback and hardcover versions, and when you place your order, you can use the coupon code MJLTBCP10 during checkout for 10% off your copies of MJLT plus anything else in our store. That code again is MJLTBCP10. My heart for you and everyone who reads the MJLT NCS is that you'll find it to be first and foremost an accurate and faithful rendering of the New Covenant Scriptures. But I also pray that it'll help reveal to you the Scriptures' authentic Messianic Jewish message, as well as deepen and strengthen your understanding of God's Word in ways that only the Messianic Jewish literal translation can. Thanks for joining me for this episode of the Biblically Correct Podcast. If you like this episode and want to see us make more, then we need your help. Visit our website at biblicallycorrectpodcast.org 
support the work of Perfect Words Ministries and MJMI with your much-needed donations. And of course, don't forget to like, share, comment, subscribe, and ring the bell to receive notifications whenever a new episode is posted. If you have any questions about this teaching, or if there are any other topics you'd like to see me cover, leave me a comment or shoot me an email at kevin at perfectword.org. That's kevin at perfectword.org. Until next time, remember that every scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for refuting, for setting a right, and for instruction that is in righteousness, so that the man of God may be fully equipped, having been completed for every good act. Shalom.